You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Well, warm welcome to everyone. Uh, my name is Keith Mines. I'm the director for Latin America at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'm joined here today by the president's senior advisor on Latin America and hemispheric policy, Juan Gonzalez. A warm welcome to you, Juan. Uh, USIP was established in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflicts abroad. And we're active in eight countries in the hemisphere and very excited to host this important discussion today. So we have limited time and uh, we hope to get a few minutes of Q&A. So we wanted to just dive in, if that's okay, Juan. So we're coming up to the midpoint in President Biden's term. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk in general about uh, where we are in terms of US policy in the hemisphere, any surprises uh, pleasant or not so pleasant? It's a good question. So first, Keith, thanks for the invitation. And to USIP, this is a beautiful building that uh, during the pandemic has not been used as often as it should be on topics that I think are incredibly important around the world, but particularly in the Western Hemisphere, given everything that we're facing. So I think it's important for you to use the convening kind of power of the institution to have these conversations. Um, look, I'll, I'll tell you that a lot of what is happening in the region um, we expected would happen. Not we expected, but we, you know, when we came in, we thought, you know, what, is, what are, is the likelihood of South America changing because of the electoral dynamics? And, and we looked at the potential election of, um, regardless of who won in Colombia, what that would mean for Colombia-Venezuelan relations, um, the uh, you know, potential of, of a Lula uh, election or a continuation of Bolsonaro, how are we going to navigate the relationship with Mexico? Obviously, Haiti is always uh, one of these issues that I think is, um, uh, has challenged uh, administrations in the uh, international community for, for decades. Um, but what we came in was, you know, this, the president's approach around the world was, number one, is really to focus on American renewal. Um, and so combating the pandemic, the generational investments in infrastructure, we saw in the CHIPS um, and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, as ways for the United States not just to strengthen itself economically, but really to strengthen its, its, its role around the world, and then developing partnerships and alliances to address a lot of these shared challenges. Why that's relevant in the Western Hemisphere is because when it came to the pandemic, um, or it came to the region, is combating the COVID-19 pandemic was probably our top priority, and starting with North America was our top priority because there's an acknowledgement that the United States would not recover if our North American partners did not recover. So we shared vaccines with them first. And since then have done, I think, um, depending on how you count it, over 70 million vaccines that we've shared with the hemisphere, followed through when, when uh, Jake Sullivan and I traveled to Brazil and Argentina last year, we were arriving in Argentina just as uh, they were using um, Moderna vaccines to backfill for the Sputnik vaccine that was not delivered by Russia. So we've been able to, you know, we were slow out of the gate, we we're able to deliver on that. And then the summit, you know, and you, I know you'll get to this, um, the summit of the Americas and the planning for it in some ways was an opportunity, not just for summitry, but really to align US policy around core challenges and opportunities facing the Americas. And I, I know there was a lot of debate around 
who came and who didn't come, but it, when the cameras were off, the focus was on some of these core challenges that the hemisphere is facing. And the ideas that came out of it are ones that, for us, are, are a way to, to address these challenges in a coordinated way. And one that looks at the region less as one that either agrees or disagrees with us, and that's how we put people in the friend and enemy column, and more about how we address challenges to democratic governance, how we address some of this, like the once in a century economic crisis that's facing the Americas as a result of the pandemic, and how we work um, to, to make sure that we're kind of revitalizing some of these partnerships in a much more, in a much more complicated political environment that is, you know, South America, Mexico, but you know, I would say in the Caribbean as well, given a lot of the challenges that we're facing. Super. I wanted to follow up on two of the things you've mentioned. So one was this question about uh, architecture for getting things done in the hemisphere. The summit is one oh, kind of a one-off every once in a while. We have the OAS. But what do you see as the key architectural challenges? And I just want, I wanted to ask if you ever wake up and say, I wish we had X to help us to get things done in the hemisphere, not just US policy tools, but a, a hemispheric tool that would help us to, to, to drive better unity, better coordination across the hemisphere? So, I mean, that's a great question, and one around the summit that we, we debated. Um, the idea that international relations theory or geopolitics are ones that apply to other parts of the world and not to Latin America, I think, um, is, a, is a wrong framework to use, particularly now when things have changed so dramatically. But I think um, we've struggled, whether Republican or Democratic administration, struggled to really move beyond counter-narcotics policy and migration as really the driving um, kind of policy priorities in, in the hemisphere and, and couldn't help really to look at how our colleagues in Europe had a, had a framework that was predictable, consistent, was across government to really deliver uh, on outcomes there are challenges in how the Organization of American States sometimes challenges the, to tackle these issues as a consensus-based organization. It has, I think, a one maybe even before the arrival of Chavez, but in the in the aught years, has been one where the OAS has um, often been distracted by debates over, you know, neuralgic issues that really do nothing for the people of, of the Americas, um, and you know we've been able to mobilize the OES uh, with other partners on issues like Nicaragua and, and, and other challenges, but it's been challenging to develop a similar kind of pace and cadence to cooperation, like that one that we have in Europe, that we have in Africa, that we have in other parts of the world where there are existing mechanisms that are robust um, and that really operate outside of, of politics. Maybe that's because in some ways Latin America policy is, um, it's difficult in that it's very intermestic, they're very huge domestic equities, but also it's much more, I think, political than um, than other parts of the world. And and so, by definition, it's it's a place where it's hard to take the politics out of some of the considerations when you're when you're trying to drive policy. How how would I fix some of this? And I and I think that, you know, at some points we were kind of brainstorming: Do we want to have a summit of the Americas every year to to make sure that there's a leader's cadence? But for myself and anybody who's worked on these, how painful these things are. I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, but we do need to have, I think, a regular place for the entire hemisphere to have, have these debates. Um, and, and I think some countries in Latin America see that as SELAC. Um, there are other organizations that have popped up. I, I think ultimately any sort of architecture needs to be measured by the outcomes that it, that it produces, and that's something that, frankly, I agree, it has been challenging for us to do. That, that said, um, 
the United States remains the most powerful force in the hemisphere galvanizing action on shared challenges, whether it's on climate, whether it's on the pandemic. These are issues where it's the United States that can really drive this conversation. But we tend to focus on the G20 space, on the UN space, uh, and, and that sometimes ignores very specific challenges that we face in the Americas that we don't face in other parts of the world. We're a region that is not at war, um, where kind of the refugee criteria that really are, are ones that allow organizations like IOM and others to do a lot of refugee work in other parts of the world are, are challenging in Latin America and the Caribbean because the drivers of migration, for example, are not war. They're not war crimes. They're not the issues that really the international community is focusing on when it comes to specific issue sets like, um, like migration and refugee crises. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's terrific. The second question that you, you mentioned, and that was this question of a pink wave that we're seeing across the hemisphere, kind of the trend toward the left. As I read it, it seems that there's just widespread discontent among, particularly among young people, and it's a very youthful hemisphere, on this issue of socioeconomic equality and on just being listened to. But I just wanted to ask you in terms of how you read that, how you see that, what are the opportunities, what are the challenges for the United States? We're in something of the same uh, disgruntled mood ourselves, so it's not something that's a surprise to us. But how do you see that? And particularly, again, as the hemisphere moves more in an unconventional way, what are the tools that we have to, uh, to, to help, to be helpful, where there's something to be, to be moved in a positive direction? What are the challenges that's going to present to a kind of a state American policy community that's done things the same way over the last two decades? Yeah, I, know, I mean, you, I think your, your assessment is correct, that it's not so much a pink wave, uh, even though we have a tendency to do that. There's an article that comes every once in a while whenever leaders are elected about, is the region moving to the left? But if you look at um, just polls that we've seen, um, it, it really is about uh, the electorate's overall dissatisfaction with their governments where they feel like governments are working for um, a small uh, elite, political and economic elite, that governments are corrupt, um, and they're not responding to the challenges in the way there's, you know, the embrace of democracy is still higher compared to other parts of the world, but it's, it's suffered. Um, and, and so if, if that is kind of the key assumption that you make when you're thinking about policy responses, then then really the way we need to think about it is how do we help make democracies deliver in the Americas? And I think that, um, and I'll, I'll speak to just some of the specific leaders, but you know, this is, um, in, this, in the senior director job, you, you really learn about how government and how the White House uh, kind of focuses on these challenges and you see the competing demands um, on, on the national security system, I think in a very, in a way that even as a director when I was here under the Obama administration, you don't, you don't see it. And I, and I think the conclusion that, I've, you know, that I think we need to come to, and I, I'm not originating this by any means, is that, is that for the United States to be a global power, it requires stability and prosperity in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and Different administrations have taken different approaches to that. You could look at FDR's good neighbor policy. We've changed, had a, a kind of about change in Mexico, whereas we intervene in that country uh, pre-FDR, under FDR, it was a very different approach with the inception of the good neighbor policy. Cordell Hall went to Argentina, and we looked at an approach to really try to work in a constructive way with the Americas because there were global challenges that we are facing. 
uh, you can look at Eisenhower and other different administrations, we've taken different approaches to, to stability. One's where we've, you know, some good, some bad, I would say. But I think today um, it's, a, it's a similar context to the one that was seen by Roosevelt, where challenges in Central Europe often lead to a realignment of U.S. policy toward the Americas because there's a recognition that we need Amer the Latin American region to prosper and to be secure and to be stable for us to be able to play this broader, I think, uh, leadership role. And so when we looked at that, the, the concerning signal is that, yes, there was this anti-incumbent uh, trend in South America, but more so, there is a non-aligned movement trend in South America. And what that means is that um, it's not that they're gonna pick one side, it's that in a much more constrained environment uh, compared to you know, the 2000s when the commodity boom allowed um, leaders to underwrite kind of foreign policy uh, views, now leaders are constrained and they have to show that they, they can deliver and right now it doesn't matter by how much you got elected, if you're not delivering on the goods, you're going to be seriously constrained. It may not be able to get re-elected or you may not be able to really finish your term. And so that to us is, number one, it's a, a, a clarion call to action about what we need to focus on, less about whether or not you agree with us, but more so about how you're elected and how you govern democratically but then ultimately trying to help uh, leaders govern. I'll get the Boric example. I know Boric is very inter uh, popular internationally, but if you look at what they're trying to do, in Chile in some ways, you know, regardless of what you think about the draft constitution that failed, what Chile is trying to do is, as opposed to uh, Boric trying to change the rules of the game so he can stay in power, as opposed to doubling down on an approach of the past, of either you're either free market or you're like far left progressive that really ignores some of these principled stances um, just so that somebody's aligned with their perspective. What the Boric team has done is they've tried to take away a Pinochet era constitution that was not working for the people of Chile. And the question is how does government respond? And, and it, the experiment as a, you know, as a hemisphere that has been a 200 year old laboratory for you know, how to deliver uh, in a democratic space, it, it is something that is worth watching and the commitment by both conservatives and um, and kind of progressives in Chile to definitely kind of put a new constitution should really be seen to all of us, frankly, here to the United States that um, ultimately this is not about where you are on the political spectrum, but how you are delivering. Um, and so, you know, we'll talk to the Argentines, even though we don't agree with them. With Mexico, we have a lot of areas of disagreement, but we know that we have to try to find ways to, to work in a constructive way you know, Petro, and I, I've been quoted saying this, um, is 40 years ago we would have tried to prevent him from arriving to office. And if elected, we would have tried to, you know, totally scuttle his administration. But the Colombian people elected him, and we have to find a way to work with him, even if we disagree. And I think that's what it is about, you know, it, it's less about influence, about where we're aligned, but rather about how we really help make democracy deliver and to the extent that we can do that and, and, and help um, stabilize uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, it'll be something that'll have implications for our leadership around the world. So that's a great framing for a number of the, I want to go to some country cases if we could, and that, that's a great framing actually for those. So let's go to Colombia. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Colombia. Let's go to, them, to, to that now. So they've now elected a, a left-leaning president. It's a country that's been through a lot in the last few years. They got hardest hit by COVID. They had 1.7 
million Venezuelan uh, refugees come in. They've had an economic battering and then violence is way up. So there's a lot going on there, but I wanted to focus a little bit more uh, for, for us on, on the peace and security issue. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you read the, the new peace and, peace and security total peace policy of the Petro administration and where the U.S. can be helpful in, uh, in, in, in bringing that to fruition and where you might see any risks. Yeah, I know it, it's an important question. The, the first thing I'll say is that I think um, Colombian society is changing, right? Where I think there's the organizing principle for political parties in Colombia for a very long time was in opposition to the FARC uh, and illegal armed groups. After 2016, that has started to shift and really into a Colombian public that even those that I think were opposed to the 2016 accord, Colombians, I think, increasingly want peace. And I think it wasn't that they voted for Petro, but that they voted for change, and Petro really captured, I think, that desire of the Colombian people. Question now is how does he deliver and how, how we kind of you know, work with them um, in a country where we have enormous national security interests. The, the first approach is we've engaged them early, had very candid discussions in a very discreet way about areas where we said, look, you want to really implement Article 4 of the 2016 Accord, meaning responding to marginalized communities, and we've said we are there, and we're going to try to do everything we can. Uh, USAID in that regard is our, our best calling card. On counter-narcotics, we've, we've said, look, we don't agree on, on some of your elements of your approach. Um, and, you know, we, we're going to want to keep talking about this. But let's take um, an, a, an objective approach to really what works on counter-narcotics. Um, and, um, and not take kind of political positions that, you know, may speak to a political base, but really, like, focus on outcomes. And... Um, and, and that has been a constructive conversation. The Colombians were here on Friday. They recognized that we need to figure out how to, how to advance this approach. And we know that counter-narcotics policy is one that needs to evolve. And in some ways, the Biden-Harris administration has already been um, leading that effort. Transitional justice is complicated. Uh, and certainly the balance between kind of reconciliation and justice is, is one that really only for, is for the Colombians to decide Previous Colombian administrations have availed themselves of transitional uh, justice mechanisms. I actually found out recently that my great-great-great-grandfather, as a Colombian-American, was a general in the liberal army during the Civil Wars, and they had a transitional mechanism where they had to actually disclose kind of where the, what they were involved in, and that's how we found a record of that. But the you know, decisions about, for example, extradition policy are really policy decisions on behalf of the Colombian president. How we react to those is also a policy matter, but um, never has a country abrogated its international claims. And so extradition claims and our judicial claims will remain. And it's a question of how we, we manage those in the way that we did with Uribe, we did those with, with Santos, um, and we've agreed to keep talking about those. The, the most important thing is, is we've agreed to make sure that we debate and argue over areas of disagreements in a way that is respectful and outcome-oriented. Um, and, uh, and one where I mean, we recognize that there's significant congressional equities around the Columbia issue, and we have a, an interest in remaining, in maintaining kind of a bipartisan uh, f focus on Columbia. It's not going to be an easy conversation because 
counter-narcotics policy does have to evolve. Um, and we need to focus on really like proven outcomes, not just let's, let's not just do what we used to always do because it's what we always used to do, which is the tendency on, on some of these issues. Um, and so this may be an opportunity to actually do something that is effective. The, the other point I'll say is that Colombia's counter-narcotics policy is a regional challenge. Um, particularly nowadays when there's been this move toward fentanyl, the, the fentanyl trade is going to completely change the counter-narcotics game because we're not talking about tons. We're talking about envelope full of, of kind of material that is being trafficked. Some of it's coming from China. Some of it's coming from the U.S. into Mexico. And, and that requires us to be less about eradicating a field and more about the value chain of, um, of drug production in a way that we need to be much more effective and, and frankly, we've not been very good at, I think, um, in the past. I'm conscious of time, but I did want to follow up with one other question on Columbia. So with regards to an ELN peace process, does that excite you? Does that make you nervous? How do you, how do you read that? Well, just like, and I was fortunate to be in the White House when the Santos administration was um, considering engaging in um, talks with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And I think our approach now is the same as back then, which is, let's see what this looks like. Mm -hmm. Because this could be a serious thing that, that could help get Colombia closer to peace, or it could be political theater. Um, and so, you know, it is very much in our interest for Colombia to be in a sustainable peace. Um, but issues of transitional justice, the 2016 accord was the first under the Rome statute, which I think is something that is, is needs important to be considered. Um, and and ultimately, you know, what are what is the agenda, and you know where where are they headed? I think is is really going to be important. But ultimately, I think we want to support a Colombian-led process. Um, a Colombia peace is, I think, probably a huge boon to U.S. interests, and it's something that I think we need to find a way to support if it is a serious process. Mm -hmm. So let's pivot, if we could, to Central America. There's been a lot of hemispheric capital. Uh, that the administration has placed on Central America. Uh, no silver bullets, um, but we, we have uh, talked about root causes and, and trying to get to the bottom of some of the, the issues in Central America. So I just wondered if you could give an assessment of, again, midterm, where is the strategy? What do we have left to do? Um, are there places where with the patient application of resources and, and programs you can see uh, progress and, and success? Uh, it's a great question. I'll say two, maybe two things. Um, the first is that I think we knew this, but it's become very clear is that the migration challenge in the uh, northern part of Central America is not a it's not going to be fixed with foreign assistance. The you know we've committed four billion dollars over four years. That's not going to be what fixes the problem. Um, it's important, but it's not going to be what fixes the problem. And in, in that regard, the the vice president has brought up, I think, a very new approach that is exciting, which is um, what is the role of the private sector? At a time when we're sanctioning a lot of people for human rights violations and for, for corruption, her theory of the case is, well, private sector can be a change agent if we are clearly articulate the profit proposition to transparency. Um, not just kind of the, the off-takers, the, the companies like Walmart that are hiring people, but also um, you know, companies that are mobilizing capital have a, ha, have a powerful say um, in really the direction of a country, of countries that a lot of times the kind of the economic interests are, are very narrow and controlled by a small group of people. Um, and so 
you know, she's mobilized billions of dollars in new investments, and that I think is exciting. The, the second, I think, lesson learned is that there is no, you, you don't address, you know, an issue that I think even predated the Cold War with, you know, in one administration. And I think we saw that when, when, when those of us that were working on this issue in 2014 and saw that in Guatemala, for example, you had civil society, you had the private sector, you had political actors, really had this up, like groundswell against corruption in a way that I, I don't think I've ever seen in, in Guatemala. It was really exciting to see that kind of new culture of anti-corruption developing, um, but tragic to see how quickly that could go away under an administration before us that did not care about combating corruption. And now just how deep in the hole um, this issue is. In the past, what we've done is we've said, well, look, as long as they're aligned with our interests on migration or X, Y, and Z, we won't, think, we won't take corruption as, as seriously, right? It won't become an issue that, I, I think the conclusion we've arrived to is that corruption is a core driver of migration. And that um, I think that um, it is something that we can't really have a, a choice between countering corruption and countering migration. We have to be strategic about, about both. And, and frankly, I think the, the vice president's approach has been novel in its, in its regard, but you gotta measure success in realistic terms. And you can't, um, the US can't fix those countries, full stop. Foreign assistance isn't gonna be the answer and it's gonna take time. But I think we need to really be in kind of deter, undeterred in in the anti-corruption uh, area. Thanks. Well, I mean, I mean, we're hitting all the hard cases, but I mean, if we were auto mechanics, we we don't get paid to fix cars that are already running well. So I'm going to keep going down that line if I could. So an observer said once of Haiti um, recently that everything's been tried, nothing has worked. There's kind of a almost a sense of despondency over Haiti, which is for many of us that have worked on Haiti for years, is a little frustrating. Um, but I just, the, the Haiti's needs are so important. It's, it's an outsized country in terms of the, uh, the level of, of pain that it's feeling. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about things the U.S. could do or is doing to help Haiti achieve a reset. Yeah, I mean, this is Haiti's, is I, I would say the one issue that keeps me up at night or that I'll wake up with and, and, and think about um, just the horrible uh, humanitarian crisis that's uh, taking place in the country. And, um, and, and look, I, I don't agree with, I, I think, this assessment that we've tried everything and not everything has worked because, uh, frankly, I feel like there is a lack of ambition and, um, and new thinking on Haiti, right? Uh, you know, traditionally, and um, if you look at just previous Democratic and Republican administrations on Haiti, Decisions, for example, on, and I'm, I'm not saying this is something we're thinking about, but questions about international intervention are rarely followed up by, you know, why is that necessary and, and what is the objective and outcome of, of such an exercise? Usually it's to, to go in and preserve a short-term interest and not to tackle what have been some of these long-standing challenges in the country. Right now, if you look at the protests that are taking place as a result of the end of fuel subsidies, they are, they are financed by, by economic actors who stand to lose money from the um, reduction in subsidies. These are people that often don't even live in Haiti, um, have mansions in different parts of the world, um, and are paying for people to go out in the streets 
Um, they did the same, same with Moise, and they, and they mobilized whenever their economic interests or preferential arrangements with governments are at a time when people are literally starving to death. And the approach we've taken has been, um, number one, at, at a time when there's really not much legitimacy to go around is to not put our finger on the scales for any one group or actor, but rather to focus on trying to promote a broader dialogue and agreement among different um, political actors, economic actors, civil society, including um, the Montana group, which has some, I think, great ideas that they've put on the table. Um, and, and that also helps because the politics in Haiti often result in violence, is making sure that dialogue is a central element of our approach, is one that has helped preserve a modicum of stability. The other has been to try to strengthen the Haitian National Police um, so that uh, an international presence is not necessary. That is challenging in a long-term undertaking. The other has been increasing significantly humanitarian assistance to the country, but the challenge remains that um, the assistance isn't getting to a lot of these communities. You go to humanitarian agencies aren't able to really go into neighborhoods like Martisan, you know, um, where that are gang controlled. The gang element is one that is evolving and is, is increasingly concerning because whereas gangs used to be a national phenomenon, they've, as they've grown, they've concentrated in urban areas and in their control of mobility corridors. Kidnapping has, has become rampant, and so it's become a, a fairly urban phenomenon, but um, the, the gangs are probably as big as they've, they've ever been. And right now, the, the violence, I think, rivals the Duvalierist period. Um, and there's just no, I think, easy answer to this. I, I don't think anybody wants to get to a point, including Haitians, of having the return of a Manusta. So the question is, short of that, what is, what is something that we can, we can do? And I, I think a lot of commentators think that there's an easy fix. There really, there really is not an easy fix in, in Haiti. Um, I also think the just leaving it up to Haitians to resolve their problems is also, I think, a line that um, I think ignores a, a really, really concerning and deteriorating situation inside the country. So the police, HMP, then gets control of the gangs, opening the space for dialogue, ultimately election, I guess. At the very least, so, you know, we used to, we used to in the past, focus on elections as an outcome. Uh, and, but, but the reality right now is how can you have elections? In, I mean, it's not our call, but um, we've been really internally talking about the helping establish the conditions that would allow free and fair elections throughout the country. But right now, if you have an election, maybe 5% of the people will vote. As in the past, you've had leaders come in with 10% of the vote. Is that legitimacy? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm sorry to break it to folks, but there is, there is not going to be any, I think, approach that is going to lead to a short-term solution or help for Haiti. No amount of assistance. And, but that, for us, is, I mean, we're we're undeterred and you know the president gets regular updates we're constantly talking about how we can actually help help the people of haiti and help actually lead toward some sort of broad agreement that leads less to legitimacy and more to the credibility that i think a government would need to deliver for the people of of haiti um and you know we're hoping to to try to make progress in in kind of the diplomatic and international support route and strengthening the Haitian National Police to the point where you can get to a point where humanitarian assistance can enter undeterred throughout the country 
to, um, to address issues as basic as they have 60% food insecurity throughout Haiti. Let me turn to Mexico real quick. We just have two more, Mexico and Venezuela. But Ven- uh, Mexico is always high, of course, on the list of priorities, unavoidable uh, connections with the United States. Um, to many outsiders, there seems to be kind of a tense relationship right now. But how much of that is a fraying in the relationship and how much is just the normal give and take in a relationship of such complexity? I think it's the, the latter. And uh, um, I, what I always tell people is that you know any sort of large... Um, relationships are going to have disagreements. The question is how you resolve them. I think in our case, sharing a, a border probably makes it even more difficult um, to get along sometimes. Uh, I think what we've done successfully is we've rebuilt the scaffolding of kind of institutional areas of collaboration. And these, these may sound like throwaway dialogues with fact sheets and joint you know, statements that come out on security, on economic cooperation, but they're producing results. You know, there was a breakdown in law enforcement cooperation after the kind of Cienfuegos uh, um, scandal um, where the Mexicans weren't even talking to DEA. We've now started to kind of think about what, what do we want out of a security relationship and how can we actually build this in a way that also recognizes that the U.S. has a responsibility here given that weapons and cash, bulk cash is smuggled down to Mexico. You know, we should have it not just be about what Mexico is doing but what we're doing together and that is working. Um, and um, on the economic side, we had an excellent visit to, to Mexico two weeks ago where there was this recognition that the, the CHIPS and the Inflation Reduction Act are, have created a huge opportunity for U.S.-Mexico cooperation on, for example, semiconductors, um, and, but that we need to move with a sense of urgency. And then, you know, we have disagreements. The Chapter 31 uh, consultations on, on energy are just that. They're consultations to try to work through some of these issues. And um, I'll say that the, there's the public kind of debates. I think, you know, those, whether you're looking at the Mexican press or the U.S. press, um, aren't always reflective of what has been a very active and constructive um, bilateral dialogue, certainly with clear areas of disagreement. I mean, everybody who followed the summit saw that um, Lopez Obrador um, asked for Cuba to be invited. Um, the president, he discussed it at one point, and, and we took the president took a month to make a decision on whether or not to invite Cuba because he wanted us to consult. But ultimately, for him, the the human rights situation is something that is in his in his blood, and there was no way that can reconcile having a you know a con- country like Cuba at the summit of the Americas when thousands of people are in jail simply for singing or for demanding greater freedoms. And, it, and so he finally made that decision himself. And we told Mexico, look, we still want to get along and we want to work with you, but we disagree on this issue. And intentionally invited AMLO up to Mexico or to Washington to show that we can disagree and still work together on things. And I think, I think that's been borne out by the outcomes of of, um, of the relationship. Mm-hmm. So final case is, is Venezuela, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions, then I'll give you a chance at the end to, to kind of wrap up with any, uh, any broader themes. But Venezuela, um, you and I have worked together on various pieces of Venezuela, and just wanted to give you a chance to, 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 to give your vision for, for the country. Um, a lot in play now that hasn't been in play before. The democratic opposition is much more realistic than they've been in the past. There is some democratic space uh, that, that Maduro has allowed for them to work in. 
Oil is more interesting than it's been in the past because of the Ukraine crisis. So there's a few things in play. But I just wanted, in terms of looking ahead to 2024, which is the next Venezuelan election, do you see a path where there could be enough operating space for the opposition to actually give it a go and for there to be kind of a good enough election? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I, I would point to just the election in Barinas as an example of how, with everything stacked against them, the opposition still won, right? Um, and so uh, that, that to me shows that if, if the electoral field is leveled, that, um, you know, that ultimately Venezuelans will choose a different direction. But our, our approach has been, I think, um, to not make the mistake of thinking that we're actors inside of Venezuela and that there are things that we can and the things that we cannot control. And that ultimately, um, it is a dialogue that is led by Venezuelans that, that really, I think, will over time lead to the outcome where I think free and fair elections allow political actors to compete for power um, in, you know, as we do here, as we do in other parts of the world. We um, also know this regime very well um, and know, uh, you know, how it operates, the criminal elements in it. And so in, in that sort of environment is not, I don't think it's subject to the normal puts and takes of a, of a negotiation between two political actors when, when one is deeply involved in criminal activity um, and is not interested in negotiation. Um, so you know, our, our approach has been, number one is to internationalize the, the Venezuela challenge. I think the Lima Group process was people, countries signed up for the Lima Group process when they thought that we had a plan. And unfortunately, I think, found out that really was about the politics of Venezuela and not really about the outcomes. And so what we're trying to do now is create, expand the international consensus in favor of democracy in Venezuela, trying to get as many countries involved in a focus that is a Venezuelan-led dialogue. And we have been very clear um, that as it relates to sanctions policy, we are prepared to alleviate sanctions on the basis of progress at those talks. And we will re-implement those sanctions if there is regress or if there's an, or if there's an absence of, of, of talks. We have not imposed new sanctions on Venezuela since we came in um, for a couple of reasons. Number one is that concluded that no additional sanctions would change the status quo and may actually close the space for dialogue. Um, but at the same time, law enforcement actions have continued un unfettered. We saw the kind of seizure of the Venezuela plane in, um, in Argentina, the Alex Saab case. Those have been very clear law enforcement efforts consistent with the Verdad Act uh, that was signed or supported by nearly 20 Democrats and Republic Republicans has really been the approach we've tried to follow. Will they return to the negotiating table? I'm optimistic they will. Will they stay there? Uh, I don't know. And so anything that we do on the sanction side, we're going to limit and we're going to put a time to it so that if talks fall apart or they delay, we will re-implement those sanctions. And that really, I think, is, is a formula that may not lead to a perfect election in 2024, um, but I think any steps that we can take in that direction are are important. The final, the final point I'll say on Venezuela, and, I, and I'm sure folks will have other questions, is if you look at the number of Venezuelans that are arriving at our border today, 40% of those are coming from directly from Venezuela. They're not coming from 
uh, you know, the, the over 2 million that are in Colombia, the kind of roughly 6 million that have left that country since 2014. Um, Venezuelans are still leaving that country in enormous numbers. And, and so it is in our interest to ensure that economic and political stability return to that country as a way to addressing the, I think, fundamentally the migra migration crisis. Unilaterally lifting sanctions is not going to fix the problem because even though some have made that call, because what it does is it goes straight into the pockets of, of, of again, actors who really have no, in, no interest or, um, or have demonstrated that they don't, they don't really care that people are leaving and risking their lives to walk here to the United States. So again, our approach has been trying to take a multilateral approach and a very clear calibration of sanctions that really is tied to, to talks. Super. Great. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. We've got about um, five, a little more than five minutes for questions. We wanted to favor the audience first, so we'll go to a few questions here. Medium's got the mic, and then um, we'll, we may be able to take a few from online. But let me start with um, Jose. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no. No, I'm sorry. Um, thanks. Hi. Thank you. Uh, two questions on Central America. One, what do you think uh, of your strategy? Is working your strategy on Central America? Is failing? Do, do, do you think do you need to uh, review your strategy, your whole strategy, uh, do the uh, democratic backsliding in, in the region? And the second one is, which is the administration position on the announcement that uh, President Bukele just made that he will seek for re-election uh, despite the uh, explicit ban of re-election in the Constitution of El Salvador? Yeah, I mean, so we're, I mean, we're constantly reevaluating our strategy. I mean, that's, uh, strategies need to evolve over time, and we are constantly kicking the tires on our approach. Uh, often what we'll do is we'll calibrate on, you know, how, much, how public do you want to be on certain things, um, and, and how, you know, how do you preserve a space for for dialogue directly with the government, and so we're constantly reevaluating it, recognizing that the United States is not is not going to, I think, over a four-year period or a three-year period or a ten-year period, going to address what are deep, deep, um, uh, I think, challenges uh, and embedded, I think, corruption that uh, that countries like like Guatemala have. Um, but we continue to believe that is the right approach because I think in the past we have deprioritized combating corruption, I think, to our, um, I think to our peril. Uh, on, on Bukele, look, I, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, as, as leaders struggle to govern, there's this instinct to try to change the rules of the game to stay in power. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not an expert in the Salvadoran constitution. I think there have been really... Um, a lot of, I think, on either side made arguments that this is legal and this is not legal. I think, I think fundamentally, it is about the tools for um, effective democratic governance. And I, and I think those are ones that have concernedly been breaking down in El Salvador. The justification that popularity justifies means is, is really the same argument that Hugo Chavez made in the late 90s and is not the right argument when you're talking about I think addressing the challenges of governance. Um, that said, man, like the El Salvadoran people are ones that we have a long-standing relationship with, and and that you know, it, notwithstanding disagreements we may have with 
with um, the Bukele government, we need to be present and we need to be engaging with the government, engaging with the people, engaging with the private sector on, on these sorts of issues. Thanks. Um, let's stay in this cluster right here. Jeff? Sorry, thanks. So on Venezuela, uh, you know, we just saw in the hearing last week, Assistant Secretary Nichols mentioned preliminary talks uh, in Caracas and Oslo between the regime and the delegation of the unitary platform. I'm just wondering, can you talk about uh, how supportive the U.S. is uh, of these preliminary talks and, uh, and ways that uh, the administration is, is thinking to uh, move the ball forward and, and, and support that delegation? Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so the the humanitarian content of some of those conversations are ones that are basically picking up where they left off last October, where they kind of signed an MOU and agreed on kind of humanitarian accord. They're trying to take that up again. Um, Ambassador Story has been really the point man with the Unity Platform, who are main interlocutors. Um, and uh, despite the speculation about my trip in March, the, the main message there, in addition to um, engaging on detained Americans was to say that basically all sanctions were on the table, but that the conversation was not with us. It was with the Unity Platform. And that, if you know, we've been saying it publicly, but they wanted to convey this directly that, um, that the U.S. would reward progress at the talks by alleviating sanctions pressure if they returned. So, you know, we've been criticized for that. It was the right approach. Um, and, but we remain incredibly supportive of a return to Mexico City. But, but ultimately, it's about outcomes, right? I think that if we see this scenario where there's grandstanding at the talks and then they walk away and want another alleviation of sanction to kind of go back, then it's not serious. We need to see not just a return to Mexico, but a clear vision for what they're going to produce over time. And we've been very clear. We're, we're not going to be unilaterally lifting sanctions. Um, we're going to be doing this on the basis of, of outcomes at the, at the talks. Sorry, stay, we'll stay here um, next to Jeff, and then we'll go behind. Thanks. Hi, this is, uh, this is Ana Mendez. I'm director for Central America at WOLA. Um, there is a trend in Central America towards authoritarianism, and unfortunately we have seen that many countries, as uh, Jose mentioned, in, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, have followed the Nicaraguan playbook. Uh, so my concern is that we haven't seen like any like strong strategy from the U.S. government to prevent authoritarianism in the region, and um, so my question is, what is the U.S. strategy to? Because I believe that the fight against corruption has reached a limit. So now we're not talking about uh, anti-corruption mechanisms, but we're talking about how we defend the minimum. Um, so that's my question. And then the second one, a quick on Guatemala, in your own words, a Guatemalan private sector is elite depredadoras. So what do you think about how a, the private sector and the economic elites in Guatemala can like, have an active role in preventing uh, authoritarianism or if they are part of this uh, problem in the region and how the U.S. engage with the private sector in Guatemala? Thank you. No, I mean, I, I would disagree with the premise that we don't have a strong strategy because, you know, obviously billions of dollars in assistance, very high-level engagements, leadership by the vice president. I think the, the, where sometimes there'll be areas of disagreement, again, is, is how vocal and public we are on some of these things. And, you know, I'll debate these uh, with colleagues in the human rights sector where I'll say that they'll say, you're not being critical enough. And I'll say, well, look, sometimes, sometimes we're not going to be critical, but we're going to make 
our actions speak for themselves, whether it's you know, the angle list, whether it's other sort of sanctions, whether it's withholding assistance. And, and again, we're constantly calibrating this approach for effective outcomes and recognizing that this is a long-term, I think, undertaking. The issue of kind of preventing breakdowns in democratic regimes are issues that people much smarter than I really understand. It's just, obviously, it's, it's very hard. And for us, again, it's an approach of engaging across government, civil society, and the private sector. On the private sector side, um, look, the, the, fundamentally, the vice president's approach is, is disruptive in a good way because you bring in new economic actors, you partner with those economic actors that are um, transparent, that you know, want to invest in their country, that see governance as something that can really improve their bottom line. And th those are the things that, that we are fundamentally doing. Um, and when you have Fortune 100, 500 companies saying, we will increase investment, um, but we also have kind of a culture of transparency that you know, will, uh, will in entice or serve as an incentive for for us to partner with uh, other private sector actors, that'll take time, but it's something that I think is a, is a, a solid concept to, 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 to partner with the private sector. Because I think it's wrong to ask a private sector actor to be involved um, in anything outside kind of what their comparative advantage is. So as long as you stay in, in really what the private sector does best, um, you, I think it's, it's something that you know, traditionally produces outcomes. But again, this is an area where you know, Ricardo Zuniga is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary. He's also still the Special Envoy for Central America. We are talking constantly with the Vice President and as a team trying to figure out how, how we can adjust or adapt our approach. Um, and that's something that on a regular basis, you know, and, and obviously with input from all of you, um, ha have made adjustments and will continue to. So we're a couple of minutes over. We just have a couple time, time for a couple more questions. Over here on the aisle. Oh, thank you and good afternoon, everybody. And thanks to the USIP for this opportunity. My concern is the following. As we all know, last century we have a nuclear threat, a nuclear war in the United States when the missile crisis did occur. Right now we have a point of gravity or nuclear possibility with Venezuela. If Russia or China, which they already have, military personnel on the ground becomes a base and then change the balance of power in the region by establishing a military base and a nuclear threat against the United States and the region. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that it's important. We haven't really talked about um, the role of external actors. And so as I think what Russia, um, in hindsight, is, has, you know, preparing to do in advance of its invasion of, of Ukraine um, was to prepare to actually promote a new Cold War with the United States in the, in the region. Um, and, and I think China's been active economically, but I think more so Russia um, has, I think, tried to shape the debate about um, their justification for the invasion of Russia, what the role of the United States is. And I think, I, frankly, I'm more concerned about Russia and Nicaragua at this particular moment than I am about Venezuela and Cuba. Um, because whereas, I, th I think my read, and you know, this is something we watch very, very actively and closely, whereas, whereas the Cubans don't, don't necessarily wish us well and disagree with us on a lot of things, they, they kind of know 
in some ways that there's a bit of a, a line. Same in, I think, in Venezuela, that ultimately they want us to alleviate sanctions pressure. They know that um, becoming a, you know, a military silo base for Russia would be um, something that would undermine their economic interests. Nicaragua, the gloves are off. And the things that they're doing in Nicaragua, if when you're in this kind of situation where nobody in the hemisphere, including kind of governments to the left, um, support what Daniel Ortega is doing, that, that is a new kind of phase, because usually there's, you know, uh, people on the left will give them a pass. But um, the role of Russia and the activities of Russia in Nicaragua, for me, are alarming. Um, at the same time, you know, Russia does not have the capability to do this right now. They will do a lot of, um, they, they will talk big, um, and they will say they're going to send strategic bombers as they have in uh, Venezuela since before 2013, but they don't have the capability to, to really follow through on any of that. And I think in large part, the countries of the hemisphere don't want that to happen as well. But, but I think you're right to elevate this as an issue of concern because at the end of the day, um, you know, Venezuela would not be where it was were, were not for Chinese and Russian support. And I think that's, that's something that cannot be ignored as you're thinking about really trying to encourage dialogue between the Venezuelan people. I mean, I'll say, and this is me speaking, is I'm sure the Russians saw the election in Barinas and said, whoa, we can't, we can't leave it to chance. Um, and, uh, you know, I think inevitably we'll try to make it more difficult in the next election. Thanks. So just one final question. We are out of time. Uh, right here in front. Okay, thank you for your remarks. My name is Sebastian Albuja. Um, in addition to corruption as a key issue um, that is really eroding you know, democracy and, and causing migration, as you mentioned, the other key one is citizen security. You know, there's research, and we know from experience that when people are victimized by crime, when they're uh, you know extorted or you know in any way victims of crime, they either seek to leave through migration or they lose trust in democracy and support the likes of Bukele, of Bukele and Bolsonaro. So it really is a key issue in terms of supporting the roots of democracy. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how to do citizen security better. You know, I mean, there's a gamut of things that have been tried from Manadura to community policing and everything in between. Um, and so I don't know if, you know, you can elaborate on, on, on our strategies for that. Yeah, I mean, we have a tendency to kind of um, default to support for the military. But and, and I think, you know, well-worn path about the importance of civilian um, security institutions. The I'll say, and I won't answer your question, but I think the... The, to put a finer point on the challenge is that during the pandemic, what we saw was that criminal organizations took advantage of um, governments and um, and security institutions being distracted to really expand their presence. And so during the pandemic period, drug trafficking organizations grew significantly um, and expanded. Mexico's presence in Colombia um, is concerning. Uh, the, the amount of Mexican cartels that are very active in Colombia are, are very concerning. Not just that, but obviously the migration challenge has also distracted security forces uh, as they've tried to enforce their borders, have made it difficult to, to combat interdiction. You know, it comes down to, I think, and this is the question in Colombia, is, that, is about the presence of the state. It's not enough to, um, to completely switch your counter-narcotics approach if you're not going to have a kind of broad presence of the state, meaning not just security, but access to judicial institutions, access to health, um, and a presence that traditionally does not exist in entire parts of Colombia, 
parts of, of El Salvador or other places. That's an area where we, I think, have a comparative advantage and have a tried record, but it's, again, we, I think the success of Plan Colombia was one that we had a partner that rose to the level of the challenge. That, that really, that the level of the commitment by the government and its leadership on these issues is determinant on really the, the success of the, of the outcome. So there's no silver bullet to this issue. Um, and, uh, and again, it's not fundamentally an assistance question. I, I don't, I don't want to go on too long, but I, I didn't mention kind of the economic agenda. And uh, in, in this regard, you know, when we came into the planning for the Summit of the Americas, we, we looked at some of the ambitions that Bill Clinton um, really laid out in 1994. And part of that was really a, a core focus on free trade as our, the dominant kind of trade in our economic policy that led to having more free trade agreements in the Western Hemisphere than any other part of the world. That has had positive outcomes, but it's also led to dislocations, has not addressed issues of inequality, and um, a whole host of, uh, I think, economic challenges that the region is facing that are indirectly related to the security issues that you name. The America's Partnership is, is one that looks at how you reform multilateral institutions like the IDB to not just address poverty and, inf and, inf and infrastructure, but look at expanding the provision of public goods. Um, and, uh, but also, how do you mobilize private capital in a way that helps startups and help address, um, uh, I think, issues of, of inequality in the country, help with the technology adoption, help really facilitate the, the energy transition. Um, but also, you know, we have this foundation of free trade agreements. How do you build on these free trade agreements to renew uh, a social compact that has been like lacking in Latin America, the role of government and democracies? These are questions about pre-distributional policies and, and how, in many ways, what the president is doing here in the United States, uh, investing in work fam working families, addressing um, issues of social justice and environmental justice, and in investing in the future of our competitiveness. How do we help the countries of Latin, and the Latin America and the Caribbean really tackle these issues at a time when they're running out of time? I think are central to the whole democracy agenda. It's our China strategy, it's our migration strategy, and our ability to really um, deliver in a serious way on the economic agenda is in some ways going to be determinative of how the U.S. remains a relevant voice and actor in Latin America and the Caribbean. Because as I mentioned, when you have leaders that, even if they're elected democratically, really have to be pragmatic about the decisions that they make and the alliances that they make, we need to continue being that partner of choice. Well, I was going to give you a few minutes to wrap up, and you've just done that. So okay. <laughs> that was tremendous. No, that was a great, I think, a great way to, to end this conversation. Tremendous um, engagement that we've had today, and, and I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to join us here at USIP. I want to thank our events team and the Latin America team, Miriam Sykes, Carla Hauer, that have, were essential in putting this event together, and your team as well. And, um, and really, I think we covered a lot of, of really rich uh, territory. There's a lot of uh, things to follow from here. Thank you all for joining us, um, and hope to see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, Keith. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.